give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 22 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon, and I am very excited to be... Well, this is actually the first Metallicast episode of 2020. Last time you heard me, I was joined by my buddy Greg in the crossover that nobody asked for. Uh, we do a little side podcast called Course Being Podcast. It was a little bit different than what uh, you might normally hear on Metallicast. Uh, but hopefully you enjoyed it nonetheless. And this episode, we are getting back to the roots. Uh, we are going back to the earlier days of our favorite band, Metallica, of course. Um, and to help me do so, I am joined by a first-time guest, a member of the Metallicast Militia! Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Just Dave. Dave, <laughs> Dave is fine because nobody knows how to pronounce the way it's spelled, and I usually wait to hear them say something absurd like Duve or D. So it's just Dave. <laughs> well, you know what? I was going to uh, message you because it, the spelling—correct me if I'm wrong—is D V A E. Yeah, as a running joke, uh, I typoed my own name on my original Facebook account when I was younger, and it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd been drunk Facebooking, I typoed my own name, and it stuck, so it's, it just became money whenever than there. <laughs> so I was like, I, I'm assuming it's Dave, let me yeah. message him, but then I I heard a little snippet of you on Alpha Metallica, and I was like, alright, it's Dave. <laughs> I, I quite like letting people try and pronounce it now because everyone's so cautious because they don't want to offend anyone. They're like, where are you from? I'm like, Scotland. They're like, is that Gaelic? And I'm like, no, it's just Dave. I just typed it wrong. <laughs> Which reminds me, one, to thank you because it is late night there. So thank you for being so accommodating with my schedule. And I'm a night owl. Well, good, because uh, that means that works out for me because <laughs> I am... I am not a night owl so much because I have to be up at the crack of dawn for work. Um, Same. Oh, really? Yeah, but I just, so I don't, just I don't have great sleep and power. <laughs> I get, like, you know them one-hour power naps where you wake up feeling like He-Man? You're like, yeah, I can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I live on them. God bless you, my man. Gotta be done. Uh, but also, I think this you are the first international guests i've had on meaning somebody outside of the united states i know we have international listeners but i you might be the first international guest i know rye from sabbath bloody podcast recorded a little something something but it was not a formal guest um so i think you are the first so congratulations this is history first in the making first scottish and first international yes that's actually no thing. that's i i lied to you i'm sorry because oh. richard s he who's been on a bunch of times is in australia Cancel the trophies. <laughs> but you're the first Scottish guest, so yes. that's going to count for something, right? I'm always the first Scottish guest. This is what I like to do to my guests. I like to build them up and then just be like, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> Don't you feel great? You're like, yeah. You're like, well, not really, but you should. <laughs> This should be a great episode as long as you don't suck. <laughs> yeah, well, I, don't, I can't promise anything. So, Dave, tell me... A, I, I, I like to ask this to all first-time guests. Tell me your Metallica story. When did you get into the band? 
Um, just what is your background with them as a fan? It's a bit of a mixed memory at this point, but it's essentially my sister's boyfriend uh, handing me a pile of CDs, which included like White Zombie, Metallica, and Cypress Hill. When he's cleaning out his car, and I was about eleven, I'm like, "What's this?" Looking at covers, I'm like this one's just plain black. I'll put that to the side. Little did I know that would be the best one of the bunch. That's the Black Album, just sitting right there. So I listened to all these CDs he gave me, and then listened to some more, listened to some more. Realized I really liked the band. They introduced me to a hundred other bands, and I haven't stopped listening since. Nice. Yeah, the Black Album was definitely my entry point into the band, as I've said before on the show. So once you got that pile of CDs and you got into the Black Album, what direction did you go in? Were you was it like an immediate like I need to know everything about this band? Did you kind of know of them before, or was this like your true the only time I'd heard heavy music as a kid, really, like, my mum listened to Black Sabbath a little bit and the Beatles, but the only, like, heavy distorted guitar I can recall as a kid before that was, you know, when you're playing, like, a wrestling video game and you hear some riff? Yeah. And like, oh, I kind of like that. But then finding out the band, and then finding out that band has not just one CD, but nine, and they have, like, this, and you get, <laughs> you get stuck in, you end up spending all your allowance on it, then all your job money on it. Then you end up buying yeah. Wii games with a themed guitar. <laughs> because you're the ultimate loser. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are all that loser, though. So oh, that's, yeah. why, that's, that's why, why we're podcasts like this exist. <laughs> Collectively, we are winners. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I had a similar story where I was in elementary school when I first heard Metallica. My introduction to them was the Black Album, like I said. And... I got it on cassette when I was in third grade as a birthday gift. Ooh. And then, so I was an early listener. But that, in my eyes, was the only Metallica album that existed. I had no clue of their history. I was obviously very young and naive. Um, and then I remember being in sixth grade. And that was the year that Load came out. And that was also the year that for Christmas I got my first CD player. And Load was my first CD um, so I was like, oh, they have two albums out. <laughs> and I remember being like, I remember being like, oh, these guys on the back of the load CD look a lot different than the guys <laughs> in my black album cassette. And then I went to a local record store and I was looking, I was like, eh, let me just look at the Metallica section. And I was like, oh, they have four other albums. I'm like, let me get one. I'm like, which one do I think I can bring home and piss off my parents the most with. So I went went with Kill Em All. Because I was like, if this doesn't raise an eyebrow for my mom, then, you know, something, I feel like something's off here. Can I say that's a good choice? If it's a good enough album title for Brock Lesnar to tattoo on his back, it's a good enough album title to piss (laughs) off mom. Right. Oh, great. So you're a wrestling fan too. Oh, yeah. I'm into American Culture 101 formed in Haggis right here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> perfect um, so I bring it home and my mom kind of was like my mom scolds my brother I remember like why did you let him buy this like my brother cared or had control and mm. long story short I kept it I listened to it but it, I bring that because I had the same reactions I did with him like wait who are these guys on the inside and then I listened to it I was like wait this is Metallica <laughs> And then that sort of started my whole, like, let me 
figure out everything about this band, and the rest is history. I I didn't really see Metallica until late on to listen to them because I just uh, I wasn't a great attention span kid, so the CD had gone and it'd be on in my room while I was just running around being madness. I was just being a bad child, like, <laughs> but that was on while it was happening. I remember yeah. distinctly my first memory of watching the I Disappear video. They played it before Mission Impossible 2 in the theaters. I remember looking at it and thinking, I thought they wore denim jackets. He's got a silk shirt on. Like, is this the movie? <laughs> like, what's going on? That's funny. Completely threw me. I was like, they look younger but older? Must be the movie. Must be the movie. <laughs> You gain and lose age in movies. <laughs> and you gain and lose respect. <laughs> so, all right, it's cool to know that we have like kind of a similar entry point, especially since, like I said before, we'll be traveling back to the earlier years because that obviously means it's before our uh, discovery of the band. So this should be fun. But before we get there, uh, a couple quick news items. Um I do want to mention, let's start on a positive note. It seems like, according to all reports, that James Hetfield is out of rehab, which is great news for all of us fans. Um, we're recording this on, I have no clue what today's date is. Is it January 28th? 30th. 30th here now. Oh, yeah, the time difference. So you are January 30th. I am January 29th. Uh, so a couple days from now in the States, uh Hatfield is scheduled to appear at an exhibition of his cars that are going to be on display. Um, so that'll be his first public appearance. So I'm really interested, uh, for selfish reasons as a fan, to see if he does, in fact, make that appearance. And, you know, kind of, if this is the start of him being part of the public eye again. Um, which means obviously if that is the case he's in a good place mentally and emotionally and physically so i'm hoping that's the case i know they have a busy uh schedule ahead of them i think starting in march which is right around the corner um so hopefully things are going well for him obviously we still wish him well here at metallicast but it looks like according to all reports he's out and doing well which is great news but then we had some very unfortunate news in the Metallica community. This is the first time I'm getting a chance to record since the passing of Ray Burden. Um, I'm just not sure if I could think of another musician in the entire world of in any musical genre that if a parent of theirs died, it would have a personal effect on me. <laughs> yeah, I think a... Ray Burden's the only one. <laughs> Maybe Lars is that of curious, weird interest. That is true, actually. That is a good point. Because um, it, it's funny how these figures... It, it was funny how Torben Alrich, Lars's father, has become yes. sort of like this mythical figure in the metallic community because of his, um, you know, his parents and various things, especially probably most famously in some kind of monster. Mm-hmm. Um, delete that. <laughs> I had him saying it sounds like an echo chamber as my ringtone for a little while. <laughs> it's it's very, very dry, very backhanded dig that one. I liked it. Yeah. So that was a. I, I think since that movie, especially, he's been sort of a part of uh, Metallica mythology and fandom. And uh, But, you know, Ray Burden for completely different reasons because 
he was the one carrying the torch for Cliff. He was the one, uh, not that the band themselves did not do that, not that he was in danger of ever being forgotten, but Ray was doing everything he could through social media and appearances to make sure that the his son's memory and music never will die. And it's really amazing how he carried the torch all the way to the very end. Um, and according to, I, I, I never got the privilege to meet him. I know, uh, other fans have at various shows and whatnot. Um, I do know I did see him, uh, in a really cool moment. I talk about my trip to the Rockwell Hall of Fame in episode two of Metallicast, and I was able to see Ray Burden there, accept, uh, the honor on behalf of Cliff and the Burden family. So that was a really cool moment. Um, but, you know, all these appearances, I think, too, when you see him doing things like that and coming out to the shows, he's and he just seems like the nicest, sweetest guy. And uh, I'm not going to lie, that was a difficult day for me as a Metallica fan, but I can only imagine how difficult it was for the Burden family and for the band members themselves. And uh, just so I, you know, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned it and say rest in peace to Ray Burden and my condolences to everybody personally affected by it and the good news is is that um i'm not sure if you got a chance to see dave um his stepdaughter is Mm -hmm. it looks like she's taking control of the social media accounts and stuff to keep everything going um to keep the memory of cliff alive and on that end of it which is really cool it's a really nice thing to see such a strong community behind something like that. Like, not just his dad, but when you read about him and you, you read about the things his dad did after he passed, like, he was genuinely, like, a, a champion of Bay Area heavy music. Like, he just he yeah. wanted it to succeed so much because he knew Cliff liked it. And that's really nice yeah. to see that people are still going at it for him. That's good. Yeah. And it just all the connections he kept that were... Cliff's friends and um, colleagues, you know, um, from everybody he came up with to Metallica themselves to the former members like Jason Newstead and Dave Mustaine, um, just, you know, all around, like he had these personal connections with all of them just because he wanted to be uh, kind of the representative for his son and, you know, and I, and I, I think the end result was he was a father figure for, if not all those guys and a lot of those guys, especially for, um, I think somebody like James. Definitely. And in a strange way, I feel like our main topic for this episode is a little bit appropriate, uh, following the passing of Ray Burden, because, um, you know, listeners have said, Brandon, do more earlier years stuff. They've said, Brandon, do more live performance stuff. Well, here you go. You're going to get both because Dave and I are going to break down a very landmark concert in uh, the Metallica, in Metallica history. Day on the Green, 1985. And I say this is an appropriate topic following the passing of Ray Byrne because I feel, I feel like it's one of those shows that uh, Cliff Burden became a central figure of because of the video footages and the pictures that are out there. So yeah. many, so much Cliff footage and pictures 
um, performance-wise come from this specific performance? It's an iconic piece of imagery, just the actual footage itself and the images. It's, it's what you see Metallica become, but in early form, you've got James there, skinny, looking tall, with his weird cowardly lion shaky hair, and you, then you've got... <laughs> It's Kirk as well. Kirk looks like sure. He's got big, like curly, thick hair, and he's so young and he's nimble. <laughs> yeah. And Cliff's right at the front, double denim. His hair's going so quick; yeah. it looks like he's tearing a hole in a green screen. Like he's mm. feeling it. Yes. And it's you see it and you know it. You've seen gifts of it. You've seen like webums of it. You've seen, but it's the image of Cliff as him on that stage at that show is perfect. Yeah. And it just by pure coincidence or fate, um, the pro shot footage, because, so first of all, I'll, I'll include a link to uh, this show in the description. So if you want to stop this episode and listen and check out the clips before you, you listen to us discuss it, I recommend you do so. Um, there's not video footage of all of it. So the link that I'm going to include in the description, you're going to hear the full show. Some of it's audio only, and then when, when the footage exists, the footage is edited in. And um, it by, you know, destiny or fate or coincidence or luck, the pro shot footage that does exist is from the side of the stage where Cliff was. So you really get just up close and personal watching him play. Um, which I, I mean, which I think is why we see so much of this when it comes to uh, Cliff Burton lore. It's the clearest moving images of him, I think, of him fully in the pocket, like no pick, deep on the bass, singing a lot of the lyrics, dead in the camera. It's essentially a pro shot Cliff Burton performance piece with a band behind him, and it's amazing yes. to watch. I think it's great. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, as a, a basis myself, too, like, e even though I've seen Cliff Burden perform a bunch of times, I mean, obviously not in person, but I, I've seen every uh, video footage out there of him dozens, if not hundreds of times, um, especially when it comes to the his solos. Mm. And But it had been a while since I've kind of revisited uh, the Cliff Burden years in terms of live performances and watching video clips. And a lot of things stood out to me, but the main thing that stood out to me was, holy shit, he's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it, even though I've experienced it so many times, he I, I wrote in my notes for this, Cliff Burden equals show stealer. I think he's the... the the greatest bass player in a heavy music of all time. Like oh, he's not I my favorite bass player, but he's the greatest. Yes, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think you know you could talk about bass players like uh, Geezer Butler. I think you know Geezer Butler and uh, Bill Ward, mm. uh, arguably one of the best, if not the best. Well, not arguably. They are one of arguably the best rhythm section in the history of metal. I think oh. uh, if you're talking about bass player drum uh, combinations, Rex Brown, Vinnie Paul. Um, and it's funny because, and this is not a knock towards Lars, 
even though I know a lot of people like to knock my buddy, our our favorite little Danish drummer, down a few pegs <laughs> for his playing, and and I'm not one of those people. I it's fine because I do not think not that they were not playing together, not playing tight. Like they're not a great rhythm section because of the chemistry between them. It's just Cliffburn was such a unique player that really elevated bass playing in its prominence in heavy music, I think more so than anybody else in history. And I, I know there's a lot of names I've not mentioned, like Steve Harris and, you know, we could go on. But I, I, I even though those guys came before him, Clipper did something radical with it that never been done. I mean, Anesthesia Pulling Teeth, it's a fucking bass solo. It, it sounds, on a debut I've said it album. before. It sounds like a ray gun, like something the Ghostbusters would catch someone's aura in. That's the noise it makes when a ghost loses its strength, like that. Yes. He's a wizard. And Metallica have this weird lineage of bass players as well, because each bass player they've had has been so good, so superior, and so well-known within his like time frame. You had Cliff, you had Jason, who at the time was arguably... There was nobody in metal that had like a weirder but stronger stage presence. Yeah, Jason was an animal, and now you have Rob, who's yeah. he plays with Ozzy. He's you know suicidal tendency. He's an animal in the bass as well. Yeah, they're a very lucky band rhythm section wise because Lars, although a lot of people might not like him, they might like to take knocks. He plays his way, and he enjoys playing his way, and it drives the band. But They've got lucky enough to have bassists that can sort of fill every gap and not get in his way. Extremely, extremely true. Yeah. And and I think when you listen to any of the... And, and it's funny because all three of them have very unique styles. Like, none of them are like the other. Um, Cliff Burton, I mean, was just sort of like a wild man hippie just shredding on the bass. Jason was a lot more, um, I I don't want to use the word traditional, but I'll I'll use it, I guess, uh, for lack stock. of a... The stock? <laughs> stock. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now, let's not label Jason no, no, I just, stock. Just a reference. I love Jason, he's like my favorite. It's a good reference, though. A yeah, stock. it is a good reference. <laughs> but, um... I, you know, he lot, he was a lot more focused on, you know, laying down a groove. and But that's what the band needed at that time. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at what they're doing, the Black Album, on Load, on Reload, the they needed that kind of bass player more so than they needed, you know. Uh, it, if you hear what Cliff Burns doing in the Call of Cthulhu, the whole thing is basically a bass solo in the background, you know. Um, which is fantastic. It's amazing, and it's one of a kind. But Jason Newsom brought something different to it that was needed in the band at that time. And I think the same thing with Robert Trujillo. Now he has that, you know, uh, more of a he can. He's kind of a perfect combination of the two of them in a lot of ways, um, but with a little bit more of a funk background to add a little yeah. bit more uh, to add another layer to it. I think he's at the perfect stage of his career and his life too because he's not much younger than all the guys but he's young enough to keep them nimble and on their toes so he moves around the stage. The riffs yeah. are more sprightly in the later albums. There's a lot of... Yeah. I like it. And I, and I don't think it's a coincidence that... And again, this is not a knock towards 
Jason in his playing because there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on in the band, um, personal things where you know if you're if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know the stories of all the hazing that Jason Newsted went through. If not, we'll discuss it on another episode. But you know, there's all those personal dynamics, and then like I said, from a performance standpoint. It, it, it was just more of a need for kind of get in a groove, traditional bass player. And, you know, he never really got a lot of chances to shine. Uh, there are moments, of course. Uh, my Friend of Misery is a bass line that he wrote. It's my probably my favorite song off the Black Album. Uh, I, I think it's a very underrated track in there, um, you know, in their uh, catalog. And there are other elements there are other moments as well definitely but devil's dance has a great baseline yes uh, it has the kind of like that groovy disco sound that you like a, like a normal banjo, dust type yeah. thing or um but i i say all that to set up my actual point which is i don't think it's a coincidence that you know on hardwired to self-destruct you hear more. There's more of a bass presence and a solo bass presence than ever since Master Puppets. Definitely, there are a band that are they keep the same energy, and they're always constantly moving. There's never like a backward step in the music, even though they go they go back to songs like Unforgiven. They never go backwards themselves. But yeah. They're like their last album was like they hit the camera the road different like they got they hit the apex on every corner and they're like let's put this in here because it makes it sound faster let's put this in here because it makes it sound darker like it's really atmospheric as well yeah I like yeah, it yeah yeah for sure um but of course you know I want I I think that's important to mention we want to look at the big picture of this show as well so for, let's yes. give a little bit of background information. Uh, like I said, this is 1985, August 31st to be exact. Um, it took place at the Oakland County Coliseum. So we're talking a huge stadium, probably 50, 60,000 people. This is 1985, so this is their first stadium show or definitely one of their first um, stadium shows. I'm sure they were... Well, I take that back. I know it's not their first stadium show because they did a Monsters of Rock before this. So there's been... Other big festivals, but this is among um, one of their early stadium appearances. Uh, 1985s, so we're talking after Ride the Lightning. This is part of the Ride the Lightning tour, uh, which makes for, in retrospect, a pretty interesting uh, set list. Um, It's not interesting for the time period because it was pretty in line with the set list that they were playing, but it's cool when you put on your 2020 glasses (laughs) and you're like, Oh yeah, they ended with that song. They started with this song. It's definitely a lot uh, different than what you hear from the band nowadays. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with Donington because weirdly, Donington was their first festival. It's their festival debut as a headliner, and they played the exact same set that they played at Donington that blew the place apart. Here, yeah. track for track in order. And yeah. at one point, James stops. I think maybe a song or two in, and he beckons their crowd and he says, "Are you here?" to smash your fucking heads in. And they all chant, yeah. So he says, how about you? And they all respond and he says, all right, if you came here for makeup and hairspray, wrong place. 
let's go. And they just fire into from the bell tolls. They went in there with a, a, a motive, it seems like. They're on fire the whole show. Yes. Uh, I, I think that's the big thing that stood out to me is just all the piss and venom that's just like oozing out of all their bodies during these uh, shows. Um, this one and this, including this one, obviously. Uh, but if you look at any show from this time period, is like, and again, I do not want this to sound like a knock because I think in a lot of ways, Metallica on World Wired, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'm sure, they sound better than they ever have in terms of tightness and you add mm-hmm. in like the stage production. It's just top notch, world class. But. It's funny going back to like hearing this show in 1985 and hearing all that piss and venom from Heffield where I'm like, now it probably would be like replaced with like a dad joke, <laughs> you know? But yeah. back then it was just like, fuck you, fuck this, fuck that, let's fucking go! <laughs> yeah. I think, again, you nailed it with the time. Like, around that time, all the shows were very aggressive. But you gotta look at the bill. They're on there with Scorpions. Rat, yeah. Rising Force, Victory, and did yeah. you know there's a, a very famous story about this event? Is that uh, I believe it was Scorpions took a, a limousine ride 90 feet to the stage <laughs> from there, <laughs> and Metallica <laughs> witnessed it. That's why James was so angry about hairspray and makeup. They took up, they got out of the trailer and they drove 90 feet. And Cliff was told, I believe it was, was it Cliff? It was famously has said the limo was longer than the actual ride. They just parked. <laughs> so they're amazing. amongst all of this. They're young yeah. kids, and they're just like, nah, we're not having this. Well, it's funny because I think, you know, throughout their career, musically you can hear, like, those elements of punk rock um, yes. come through, including on, you know, Death Magnetic and Hardwired, because, you know, that's part of the thrash sounds. And... But when you go back to a show like this, you see it. And it's just so many punk rock moments like that. Like, they were taking a true stand against what they thought was shitty music and wanted to represent something new, something different, something unique, something heavier, something faster, something that they were hoping would get people riled up and forget about all the other bands that were playing that day. The confidence of four young guys, too, not just to be like, we're going to take over the world, but to be like, not only that, but we're going to take over with the sound that we made where we're from, because the world is here, and we're going to bring it to you. Like, you can keep that. We'll bring this. Yeah. They've got the, those four young guys have got the confidence to do that, and they go on and they smash it. Yes. Flawless, I thought. Great show. Yeah, it... It was really superb. Um, it's I. It's funny because the whole time I'm listening to it, watching it, I'm comparing it like if they were played these songs today, and or watching them on stage, especially with like the video footage. Watch them on mm-hmm. stage back then to how you see them on stage now, and it's amazing how you can see the growth and hear the growth. But there's something special about just them that raw and i think you know that's something that i don't think has gone away from the band but they're just such a polished well-oiled machine now that it's 
obviously not the same as it was 35 years ago, nor should it be. But it's something just so raw and innocent and a little like naive on their end and just pissed off and angry and like you said ready to conquer the world just ready to grab it by its balls and just be like yeah let's fucking go they were it doesn't matter what instrument they played it's just what speaker they're coming out of, they're gonna play what they play and they're gonna sound how they want to sound because they're like yeah. you said they're raw they're essentially just petroleum they're explosive fuel and they're yeah. going to go where they're going to go. So you may as well use them as propulsion and go with them rather than stand in their way at that point. They're an right. absolute unit of a band. Yes. And it also shows you, too, just how they were always that good. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so let's take a look at the set list. Uh, yeah. So the Ecstasy of Gold plays, which, you know, I I love how this has just always been a standard. And then... Not an unusual, unheard of opening song, but one that you haven't seen in recent years, Creeping Death. It's a way to open a stadium show. Like, <laughs> it's going to get the energy up early. That's for sure. But, I mean, the, that's the great part about these early shows, too, is that it's not, and again, not a knock because I love these songs, but you're not going to get, uh, like, Nothing Else Matters as an encore. You know, you, th- this is the heavy, fast, aggressive thrash stuff. Not that that's the only thing that they played, but I mean, it kind of is. You know, and when we're talking Kill 'Em All, we're talking Ride the Lightning. I'm not. I don't want to label it as thrash because I think, especially in Ride the Lightning, there's a lot more to it. But you know what I'm saying. This is the, the this is the let's fucking go and let's I tear think- shit up music you know this band at this time like you're saying too if you look at the album artwork and the band themselves it tells you exactly what they're going to sound like the the album artwork is a hammer and a blood splatter (laughs) the singer looks like the cowardly lions just got out of college and they're all standing there furiously (laughs) shaking it's like oh this is gonna sound it's not gonna sound like disco for sure (laughs) well just as a side note since you've mentioned his hair a couple times i'm like i always forget uh, until I see like an old video footage or uh, uh, you know an old uh, picture and I'm like oh yeah he had really blonde hair once upon yeah. a time and it wasn't like, normal like, he, he, hair he, he lo- I'm like he looks like somebody who just like he, he looks like the stereotypical like deadbeat metalhead who just like somehow <laughs> strolled off a beach sweaty, <laughs> a sweaty neck in some garage somewhere <laughs> And you're like, why are you wearing jeans, man? It's 80 degrees out. Lars like, with a tennis headband <laughs> on as well. Uh, Love it. So then after Creeping Death, they go into Ride the Lightning. No rest for the wicked. No, that's a one-two bang for sure. And then they then they slow things down with From the Beltles. <laughs> yeah, there's a small solo before From the Beltles. Yes. Just a small one. Yeah, That's when James beckons to the crowd to... Well, I can't remember what it was. It was almost word for word. It was like, if you're here for hairspray yeah. and makeup, we're not that fucking band. We're here to smash your heads together for 45 minutes. And then they just explode <laughs> yeah. into For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. And I loved how um, the intro... You mentioned there's like a little bass hole, but even during the intro of the song, Cliff adds like little flourishes that you just do not, you've not heard played 
that song has not been played like that in that way since Cliff. Um, oh no! You know, instead of going da 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 like he does on the album, it's it just kind of goes off these like little noodles and fills and it's just and when he breaks into like even like the groove of the song he's just so deep in that pocket it's it's a phenomenal performance by cliff burden from the The stadium could be empty for him i think yes he could they could be nobody he's just the bass is the most important thing to him and the way he handles his bass, too, during this specific song, he handles it like it's made of paper, like it's lightweight. He's just like, yeah, I'll just slide it and throw the whole bass that way. And you're like, what are you doing? That's like 40 pounds. That is one of the things that always stands out to me when I watch him play is, one, how he would take the palm of his hand and just, like, bang the yeah. body of his bass. Like, just bang the shit out of it. And I always love that about him. And also, his technique of playing. So most basses, like traditional basses, if you play with the fingers, you're using, you primarily use, unless if you're slapping and doing fancier stuff, you're primarily using two fingers. You're using your index and middle finger. Not Cliff. He's using all five fucking fingers. Yeah, it's like a raccoon scrambling for food. Yeah. It's just all over. Yeah. I mean, I took years of bass lessons. I can tell you this. I never used my pinky for anything in terms of uh, plucking the strings. Unless it's accidentally. <laughs> you hit the bottom string with your left yeah. off. You're like, oh, sorry. And you're like, oh, fuck. I got to try that again because that was not meant to happen. It that's, sounded like shit. Actually, but that's a good just point. wailing on it. <laughs> is there any other bass player who plays percussively with their pinky as actively as him? I'm sure that there are. It's not a rhythm pluck. Are... That, that pinky has the like, impact. Like he's that's like an yeah. index finger sized pinky. He's hammering yeah. that. I I I'm I know that there are, but I'm trying to think specifically in like the genre of metal and hard rock and just rock in general, and not one. Well, you... I was going to say, it's definitely more of a bass player with more of like a funk approach. Like, you know, if you talk about like Les Claypool or like a Flea. But the thing is, is that Cliff's not slapping. You know, he's he's just beating the shit out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, that that bass is the only way he can get out of whatever's in his head alive. And he's crawling over it like with desperation. Every note too. And he doesn't miss a note. Even yeah. though it looks frantic, like he's just hitting anything, doesn't miss a step. And I, and I mean, you you mentioned before just his stage presence, and it's like he's so captivating to watch. More, I mean, and it's not just because he's in front of the camera more so than the others. Like you watch Hetfield, he he's not he does not have bad stage presence, but he doesn't have the same. Uh, presence that Hatfield has now like he's he has not fully developed he has not fully developed himself into Het you know what I'm saying he's still yeah. just like Het <laughs> he's not Het <laughs> he doesn't yes, like that's a good I, way to put it <laughs> when I think of Hetfield, like on stage I think like you know he has that stance he has the guitar he, it's the whole presence you know even I'm not even talking about you know the guitar playing and the singing 
I'm just talking about like that. When I say the Hetfield stance, every Metallica fan knows what we're talking about. He, oh, yeah. he that that stance wasn't there yet. You know, he's he's still developing as a performer. He's still getting comfortable being the front man, I think, and being that focal point. Kirk is just kind of doing Kirk. Lars, it's funny because he has like no stage presence. Like now, I'm like, oh, it's so weird having Lars play drums and him staying behind a drum kit. <laughs> He's yeah, not popping up and no running action. around and like, like now he's like a little like gopher. Just you see his head pop up and then he's running circles and then he's grabbing a microphone. And then he's back to playing the drums. He's just all over the place. He's probably the most active drummer in all. Oh, it's like music. a dervish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm like for this full like 50 minute set, he's just sitting behind his drum set like a normal drummer. I'm like that's weird, <laughs> but Cliff's presence is just. It, it, it it's just very powerful. And what I love about Cliff Burton playing on stage with Metallica is he's kind of in his own world doing his own thing while at the same time fully immersed with what the rest of the band is doing and fully interacting with the fans. It's, I know that's like... I know what I said sounds like a sh- it doesn't go together. But if you watch it, I think it makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nail on the head, man. He's got some juju going on, some weird voodoo energy, because nothing he does physically is in sync with anybody else, but everything he does physically on his instrument and with his energy is in sync with the crowd, the drums, the guitar, the vocals. He's just there. In the pocket yeah. is the best way to describe it, and he's yeah. not getting out of it. There's, I don't no. think there's a better recording of him just in it yeah there's several moments during the set that the mix really has the bass front and center not in a way even that it actually overpowers the rest of the band but it's just so clear and in a way that you don't always hear in a mix and it really brings out what he's all the final all the like the uh little nuanced things that he's doing that that's when i was just like holy shit he was so fucking good <laughs> you hear all the little things he's doing that yes. you never pick up on and you hear him play a song i could listen to a metallica song or have listened to it a million times yeah and then i'll watch it being played live and i'm like he lets go of that note for a second and hammers on the slice yeah. down one but you can't hear it but he's doing it and he yeah. does it every time so what does that do and I have to and, work out what it does in my head. I'm like, I don't understand. And what he's playing live is uh, in line with what you hear on the record, but it's oftentimes slightly different, especially during a song like For Whom the Bell Tolls. Oh, yeah. He's definitely he's definitely letting loose a lot more than he perhaps would in other tracks, like uh, uh, some of the other ones coming up ahead that we'll talk about. You know, like he's definitely just kind of... Le- He's kind of just doing his thing, and they're just sort of letting him do his thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. He's in real time, though, because probably every show in that day, like, we'll get a different little thing added, just how he feels that day. You're getting real-time Cliff Burton, little right. ad-libs. Right, which is another thing I was going to say, is that there's definitely a, an improvisational attitude with him, you know? Which, mm-hmm. really, I don't think you could say about any member of Metallica at any point in history other than Cliff Burden. Like, uh, I'm not saying that 
performances do not change. Um, but typically, how they rehearse the songs live is how you're going to hear them live, if that makes sense. Uh, yes. But with Cliff, you're going to have these little small changes uh, here or there. So you could have him play For Whom the Bell Tools. To, if you're not really listening to the bass line, you're going to be like, oh, it sounds like the other 10 performances. But when you really focus on what he's doing, you're like, that part was different. That part was slightly different. He held that note a little bit longer. He cut that note a little bit shorter. He had that little fill there when he didn't do that the last time. You know, it's all these little things that um, I think really elevated him to another level. He's essentially like a chef. Like, he knows how to make his eggs, but not every time you're going to get the same eggs. Occasionally, he's like, you know what? These guys here, this crowd, they're getting the best eggs they've ever had in their life. Yeah, Nobody's getting bad eggs. Everybody gets good eggs, but sometimes he's just going to dish out the greatest eggs you've ever eaten. <laughs> he doesn't even know it. He's just like, have that. And you're like, what? So then after From the Bell Tour, so we've had three Ride the Lightning songs back to back to back. I mean, this is the Ride the Lightning Tour. This is the album that, you know, they're really promoting um, first and foremost. But then we get our first Kill em All track with the Four Horsemen. Not exactly and... a change of energy. No. No, I would, there's I not lighting up yet. I would say if there's ever a change of energy, it comes with... The fifth song, the next song, Fade yes. to Black. Which is really, excuse me, I'm drinking a beer and I just completely belched while I was speaking. Because I am a podcast professional, so that's how we do things here at Metallicast. Um, <laughs> Fade to Black's the only time... What's that? It's the seal of approval. <laughs> Fade to Black is the only time in the set where they slow it down but we all know how the song ends so is it really slowing it down is it really getting mellow no but it's the one instance in this set where you have like a little bit of uh breathing room so to speak yeah it's a really tight set for the time too yeah like when you look at the eight, 1985 that's your set you're getting from metallica that's quite it's quite the set especially when you see like the four horsemen coming right after bells going into Fade to Black. Like, that's a good, that's one of the first five songs, and they're all bangers. Yeah, and to focus on that for a moment, so I actually looked up, uh, if you go to setlist.fm, you can look up the setlist for pretty much any show from any band that's happened, including this one, Day on the Green. But you can, if you scroll down, you can see like the shows that came right before, the shows that came right after, and you can see what the set lists were. So the show that they played, this was on August 31st. The last show that they played before this was in Berkeley, California on August 24th. And it's generally the same. The core of the set's the same, but they had a yeah. lot more covers um, and a few extra deep cuts thrown in. So they... That show went Creeping Death, Ride the Lightning, Anesthesia Pulling Teeth into For Whom the Bell Tolls, then mm. No Remorse, and then they had three covers in a row. The Money Will Roll Right In, London Dungeon, and Blitzkrieg. Then they did Whiplash, which is part of the set we'll get to, and then the encore is the same. But then they did a second encore with three other songs. So 
it's like the same core set, but with like three cover songs thrown in and a couple added deep tracks. And then just to compare it, so then the show right after Day on the Green was, was that September. the 14th? What's that? The show after was that like the was that Metal Hammer Festival, I think. Yes. Yeah. And then I was about that one earlier. And then the again, the core of it's the same, but you have the live debut of Disposable Heroes, so now we're like crossing over to you know, right before they're they're probably in the recording process of Master of Puppets at this time. Um, but obviously the album was not out yet. And you have Anesthesia pulling teeth and no remorse in the in the main set. But Otherwise, the songs are pretty much the same, you know. Uh, Encore added Fight Fire with Fire to the two songs that, you know, we'll talk. I know we're getting a little bit ahead of the show that we're actually talking about. But it's just interesting to compare the set list of what came before what came after. So the set list for Day on the Green was the core of what they were playing throughout this whole tour. Day on the Green, which is just a very concise version of what they've been playing. And when you're at a festival, you want... If you're not the headliner, especially, and they were, I think they were like the second or third build band. So they, there was two or three bands built above them. You just want to hit people and get the fuck out. And it, that in this set definitely accomplishes yeah. that. It's good. I think um, what you said about uh, being yeah. close to Master of Puppets being released might be right. Because they're playing a lot of covers. So it's like they they know they have shows to play and they need to fill the gaps, <laughs> yeah. but they can't play certain songs yet. So you get as yeah. you get less covers, then you get like disposable heroes, and down the line you'll maybe get one less cover and then another song. It's like they're working their set list out. It's nice. To it was see. interesting to me too because I'm like, um, you know, part of you is like, oh, you would think they would debut like a new live song at like a major festival show like Day on the Green, but they didn't want to. I'm sure they felt. My assumption is the song either wasn't fully composed yet. Or they just didn't have the confidence to pull it off live yet, so they just left it out. So they just got you just got like the meat and potatoes of like the the best of their best live at during this era of the band. Then after Fade to Black, we pick things back up again with a little Seek and Destroy, and obviously this has become a set standard, but it's definitely fun hearing it in the in. And it's in a more raw 1985 form. <laughs> it feels almost weaponized during this set yes. too. It's very jagged. Like it's, it's very rough. I like it. I think this was the song where the transitions were a lot rougher than what you hear on album and what you hear live now. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, they've got, they must have gained fluidity over the years. So There's got to be a time where you could probably just yell a song and they could explode into like an yeah. exact mid-verse just rendition of it and then the, this had another funny Hatfields moment too where i'm paraphrasing but do you ever get drunk and just want to like search things out in like mindless violence <laughs> yeah do you ever just like break and shit and i was like, like yeah me too young pent up like pissing vinegar like i was saying before you know it's just all this venom oozing out but he's like you want you want to just get drunk and fuck shit up? Seek and destroy. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> Love it. I hope I still have that energy when I'm eighty. Just let's have a drink and just right? break something. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Seek and Destroy 
uh, followed up by Whiplash. Uh, really fucking fast during this show. <laughs> That's exactly where you'd want it to, right after yeah. Seek, and they play it a little on the speedy yes. side. Um, I mean, obviously, it's an up-tempo song, but they definitely put their foot on the gas for this one. Most bands usually play songs faster live, including Metallica these days, but it's... This one seems especially fast, man. I don't know. The speed just really stood out to me when I listened to it. I was like, oh, they're really just thrashing away on this. I think as they got to that mid-set point after Fade to Black into, like, Seek, as they got to Whiplash, they were just... They're, like, hitting the red, ready to change gear and go even faster. They just seem to yeah. never stop, which is... What you want out of and I mentioned though. earlier in the episode, like, you know, looking back on uh, how the sets were structured in 1985 compared to what they do now, because, you know, I mentioned Creeping Death, they'll sometimes start on, but they haven't done that in years. And Whiplash is a song that they would rarely play live, never mind end on that, you know? I mean, they, they're going to come back and do the encore, but... You know, they didn't have their Nothing Else Matters, Inter Salmon, Monster Hits, and Whiplash was sort of their rallying cry of, uh, of uh, you know, who they were as a band and for their fans, you know. We'll never stop, we'll never quit, because you're Metallica, you know. It's their rallying cry. It's their call to arms. Yeah, it's a, literally, it's their war song. And during this era, they were at war with everybody else that was not them. <laughs> If you weren't, if you were an LA band, they didn't want to talk to you. They didn't want to share a stage with you. And if you were a Bay Area band, they wanted you to know that that was okay. But they were the yeah, Bay Area band, absolutely. And they've they've cemented it. Like when you look at it now, the only thing as big from the Bay Area for me is there's only hip hop yeah. in certain areas. Metallica is the Bay Area yeah, sound for a for lot sure. of people. And I mean, they're definitely the biggest band to ever come out of the Bay Area of any style music. I think one of the biggest heavy bands or biggest bands period oh, yeah. of all time. Like the the yeah. Moscow shows as well. That was crazy. They're just Yeah. They're unreal. Unreal. So then after Whiplash we get uh a two song encore, even though it's sort of like a a medley of two songs. They have uh Am I Evil. First half the song only though. And then they break into, and again, looking back at this show, 1905, this would be an unusual way to end a Metallica show these days, but they end with Motel Breath. Great end, and I thought. Yeah, I mean, they want to end ripping your face off, and they did. <laughs> they started that set list running. They didn't take a break until Fade to Black. You're running for your life the whole time. You get a small break where you're just running, and by the end, you're being chased. It doesn't. It's relentless, yeah. just pounding. But that's, again, that's exactly what you want, too. Yeah. I mean, you have to think. They did nine songs, 50 minutes, so it's literally just boom, 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 like just one after another. So it's you just gotta remember. Like punch, 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 punch. They're like following and playing before bands like Rat, like we said, uh, like Ingwie Malmsteen, Rising Force. But the day two headliners for like Day oh, on the yeah. Green were Katrina yeah. and the Waves. Yeah, New Kids on the Block. New Kids are, <laughs> Metallica didn't play again until the 90s again when yeah. he played with Machine Head. Interesting fact, yeah, yeah. Rob Flynn from Machine Head was in the, con the crowd here 
Oh, really? At that this show, cool. yeah. And he was also present the only time Metallica played without Lars Ulrich. When Joey Jordison and Dave right, Lombardo yeah, took his place at yeah, Download. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Rob Flynn's there cool for some weird occasions, like the iconic <laughs> yeah. Cliff Burton moment. But he's yeah. So like if a Rob talisman. Flynn's in, your, in the audience that just showed, chances are it's going to be something special for good or bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Exclusively touring just with Machine Head for the rest of your career would be a good idea. <laughs> but then that brings us to the end of uh, our Dan the Green, '85, and like you said, they would come back in the '90s. Um, the '91 bill was the last year they did it with the original promoter who had been doing it <laughs> since uh, the late '70s, and uh, that the lineup for the 91 day on the green is insane it's uh metallica headlines you have faith no more you have Soundgarden. i think megadeth um, oh. it's just an incredible incredible lineup. so you have you know metallica and megadeth at their commercial peak 91 you know so this faith is no more in there too you have faith no more at their commercial peak with uh, and, and Soundgarden, like, right before they're just going to, like, break down all these crazy walls and be a monster band in and of themselves. I mean, that is that is an amazing, amazing lineup. That's like an MTV2 90s festival. It's like, who are your dream bands? Like Metallica, Megadeth, <laughs> yeah. this one. Like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, just yeah, give yeah. you them all. You're like, oh, sweet. Yeah. And then... And then I think the following year in 92 it was, they played again as part of their uh, GNR Metallica tour. So both those bands played. That's right. And, I, and I, I think that was the last time they did because it ended up fizzling out. Billy Graham, who was the original promoter, he died, uh, like I said, 91 when they headlined. That was the last year Billy Graham had anything to do with it because he died in, I believe, a helicopter crash um, that year. And then... I think they carried on the name for a few more years, but by I don't I, I by the mid nineties I think I finished. Yeah, was it the so it was like the by yeah. so by the end of the nineties it had run its course, and by the, and by ninety nine too. I I you, you know what you're right because I remember seeing the nineteen ninety nine lineup, and no knock on any of the bands, but it was definitely like a lesser deal than. Um, you know, like it's peak in like the eighties and nineties and uh, in early nineties. Like you, you did not have like a monster band like Metallica playing. I think it was like Seven Dust and a few Static others. Static X, couple yeah. of weird bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like bands that were kind of hot for the moment, but you know, definitely not anywhere near a Metallica, GNR, Soundgarden, Fate No More, Megadeth level, you know. Yeah, nobody um, was taking ninety foot limo rides on the the ninety nine show. <laughs> no, nobody was wasting that kind of cash as a yeah, superstar. No. <laughs> yeah. Anything else we should mention about Day on the Green? Uh, there's there's versions of it available online to see on YouTube. You can go on Setlist FM, like you said. Yeah. You can actually buy bootleg copies of it, falsely marked live at uh, Susaki Stadium. It's a weird piece of trivia. I know this because I purchased a bootleg of Live at Sasaki Stadium, and it's this. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> and like I, like, hey, I, this, I, I know this. And like I said, I in the description, I will include uh, a YouTube link. So if you want to check out the set, it's only it's like 50 minutes long. So 
It's not like a three-hour show you have to work your way through. Um, and obviously not required for this episode, but if you, uh, it might be fun to watch and listen before you listen to us babble on about uh, babble on with our Cliff Burden boners. <laughs> yeah, essentially base boners. <laughs> so for um, those of you who do not know, there is a free app you can get on your phone. I've mentioned it a million times uh, on this show. So if you've listened before, you're probably like, Brandon, shut up. We know what you're about to say. But I'm going to say it anyways because guess what? It's my goddamn right as the host. <sighs> I don't know why I got so angry there. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> get um, off your chest. <laughs> but um, Flick Chat is a cool free app. Um, we have a, a small but really uh, cool community for the Metallicast Militia on there. If you download the app for free on your phone, use the code Metallicast, and you're part of the group. Um, there's a bunch. It's basically a forum for Metallica. We have different conversations uh, about current news or a cool article or interview that we read about the band. Or um, And I'm always posting things about upcoming episodes uh, to get people's feedback. So I post, I started a, a subject about Dan the Green 85 and include the YouTube link and encourage whoever is interested to watch, listen to the show and uh, like I just did to all of you and uh, give me their thoughts. So I have a couple listeners who reached out uh, with some lengthy responses. Ralph Savetto, the man, the legend, the myth. Uh, he's been a guest on this show and I've read many uh a thing from Ralph because he's always comes through with uh, something intelligent to say. Ralph writes about Day on the Green. Hadn't heard the whole show until recently. Until then, the only clip I'd heard seen was the one on Cliff Amal of Cliff's brief solo and their performance of Bells that I believe aired on MTV. It's fantastic to have this whole show available as this is always seen as a landmark show. Setlist is sick as it's early on in the career and only features Kill em All and Ride the Lightning era tracks. To start with Creep and end with Motor Breath is quite something to say the least. Also, the speed at which they play these songs is just bonkers, but that seemed to be the norm in the old days. You can tell just how amped up they are when they hit the stage by this. Lastly, Cliff's head banging throughout the video parts is absolutely divine. Not sure you can get much more metal than that. You know what, Dave? Every time I read what Ralph writes, I'm like, I should have just read this and we could have been done. An hour yeah, he's, ago. he's <laughs> what we said. That, you know what he said about the hair, though. The way Cliff headbangs is is something different. Yes, there's a fury in that. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, I I will say this though. All right. Because you wanted to shit on Jason. Or, I'm just kidding. I know you weren't shitting on <laughs> But uh, Jason, you said close second for headbanging. Definitely the two best headbangers Metallica's ever had is Cliff Burden and Jason Newstead. Jason Newstead headbangs from his cervical spine. That man puts his hips back and just bobs. <laughs> yeah. like, it's deadly. Doesn't move his neck at all. <laughs> he was the he was the master of the, the windmill in, uh, with that hair of his when he had the shaved sides. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then we have... it, they made his action figure have that, didn't they? Yes. Um, and then we have uh, somebody who's new to the Flick Chat community, but has been very active. So thank you for that. Uh, Swaps is his name. Uh, he wrote, 
a lot, and I'm going to try to uh, read all of it since you took the time to write it, my friend. So it says, most recognizable clip is the close-ups of Cliff playing bells, most notable of songs and set lists is Four Horsemen, which is a fairly rare treat to see live. I was lucky to watch them perform the song, my first Metallica concert, so I count myself lucky, which was actually followed by Fade to Black, which is also done in this concert, which is very cool. You can almost feel the anger flowing out of James as he screams the lyrics to a lot of songs. Oh, to be young and full of rage, which is fuel for metal. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Basically what we've been saying. Really like James interacting with crowd by just screaming and like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, this is, I forgot about this. He goes, oh yeah, oh yeah, fucking ride the lightning. <laughs> Before breaking into the song, which really is the best way to introduce the song. Just scream, oh yeah, oh yeah fucking insert song title <laughs> they should all be done like that yes <laughs> oh yeah Ecstasy oh yeah fucking Ecstasy nothing else matters also <laughs> <laughs> uh, notice a lot of little hand gestures throughout too james giving the middle finger to the crowd cliff physically banging on his bass and saying shit to the crowd while playing i think the crowd sounded pretty quiet for the amount of people present but responded best to seek and destroy Great setlist would love it if they repeated this at a future music festival, say like this October in Sacramento. So obviously he's going. <laughs> he adds on, at one point James says, if you came in to see spandex and makeup and hairspray, this ain't the band. This is a pretty bold stance. It goes against the trend in the music industry where a lot of the money in big business was investing in bands like Motley Crue, Poison, Twisted Sister, etc. I'm sure they were burning a lot of bridges within the industry, taking this stance and they didn't care. Kind of ties in with the punk rock element that we were mentioning before, too, where they really just had this fuck you, we are who we are attitude, which I love. Um, I'm sure they would rather continue playing small venues than sell out and look like these bands. They're staying true to who they are. I also believe that's why years later so many people got so angry when they changed their style and their look, thinking, oh, look, you did what you always said you wouldn't and sold out. The way I saw it was they were simply growing older and changing like everyone does and evolving as a band, wanting to explore new sounds and keeping up the times while still staying metal. Yes, they went away from thrash metal, but I think for the better. They always say they never liked being labeled as just one genre, and for that they should be admired and respected. The only way anyone could say they sold out if they'd come out looking like Poison, which of course they never did. But I like to think of that. Uh, Hatfield's Papa Hat coming out dressed like Brett Michaels. (laughs) (laughs) Talk dirty to me! (laughs) I think that was one of my weirdest times ever on Twitter, was opening it and just seeing a stream of all these women just reposting Papa Hat, and I'm like, it's Willie Nelson? No, it's not. That's that's Hat! Like, he's got the curled hat, and I'm like, what's going on? When did he become a handsome gent? A wild cowboy? (laughs) Um, I also got to give Swap's credit because he is the listener who uh, sent a really cool interview. It's a little less than 10 minutes long. It's just of James and Lars, uh, but it's an interview that was filmed for, I believe, MTV uh, for at Day on the Green in 85. Um, And I'm going to play that interview for all of you right now. As one of the leading names in the underground hardcore metal movement, how do you think the recent success of overground heavy metal has affected the fortunes of more brash underground bands as yourself? <laughs> uh, what was that? <laughs> um, I think in a way it's brought sort of more attention to the whole scene as in general. I think the resurgence in metal that took 
place about two years ago, just brought a lot of the underground stuff sort of into the limelight too. And we seem to, luckily enough, be the front runners of that whole underground thing. Why do you think across the board, the faster, younger bands are being Um, I think because a lot of the younger bands don't really have anything too original or new to offer. They just do and repeat things that have really already been done, you know, five years ago by other bands. And that's where I think we're a little different because we try and put as much originality and, and sort of just different things into what we do than most other new bands. Most new bands try to just follow really what's already been done. And we um, try and just put our own new thing into it as much as we can. Well, our, <laughs> there hasn't really been any major lineup changes since we recorded the first album. There was a bit of reshuffling going on in the beginning before we actually recorded the first album. So, um, I mean, the overall sound hasn't really changed that much. I think the only thing that changed a bit was that when Kirk and Cliff joined the band, they uh, contributed it to the songwriting end of things, which the two other members didn't in the early days. How would you describe the And what? Let's talk a little louder. What's the difference between your sound and sounds like of some of the other bands here today? Uh, well, a bit more extreme, I'd say. Not so safe sounding. You know, go for a little, you know, heavier sound. We just do pretty much what we want to do, and I think that the kids can really see that there's no sort of bullshit or anything going on. What they see is really what we're about, and that's why I think a lot of people can really relate to what we do. How do you react to the accusations? Ah, oh, they're just playing fast. They don't know what they're playing. People can think whatever they want to think. We know what we do, and we like what we do, and... Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Next. Why do you think New York and England are more open to hardcore metal? Well, started over there. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's, I think it's got something to do with the way that in Europe that you get bigger and build yourself up. It's more through touring and more through like the word of mouth and like the street buzz. Where in America, you know, to break out of the underground, you have to depend a lot on radio and depend a lot on videos and so forth. When Europe, it's more just a touring thing and a, a lot of press, you know. And you know, we're not on a major label in Europe, but. You know, just by touring a lot and just sort of the street bus that comes out of that. You know, you don't really need to be on a major label in Europe to break out of the underground. Well, Europe is so much smaller and yeah, it's just, the, the radio is really nothing over there. So it's just the word of mouth. Why does Metallica never record a video? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's like in the music business these days, there's this whole thing going around with when you release an album, then the first cut that's released to the radio station, you have to go do a video for that. And the question at the end of the day is why? <laughs> and with MTV cutting back on metal, like which they did back in January anyway, the chances of Metallica video being seen to uh, any big number of people anywhere were so slim. And we just rely more on our live performances and just on sort of that sort of whole thing, you know, down to earth image or whatever. Why do you guys think we need to get dressed up or made up like a lot of We are. <laughs> See? Uh, 
Well, I don't, we, there's no need for it, really. Uh, I think it goes along with our music. It's just, you know, no frills, just go for it, you know? Uh, no really any kind of false, you know, image or anything to bring across. Our music is very natural, so we should, you know, wear what feels natural to us on the stage or what's, you know, comfortable. Instead of, you know, thousands of chains hanging off or something, you know. I mean, for us, the music is like the main thing, and image or how we look or whatever, that's pretty much the last thing. Can you start that again? Sure. I just noticed the camera was on its way to So start with the music and For us, the music is like the main thing with what we do, how we look or what kind of image that people sort of see in us or whatever. That, I mean, that they can worry about that. <laughs> we just worry about our music, which is really how we get you know, our kicks from playing, and um, we swear what comes with that, you know? Uh, that's really all there is to it. <laughs> How do gigs like today's Dan Green and Don Park compare to the gigs that you guys usually do? There's more people here. <laughs> more um, bands. Yeah, there's more bands. There's more people ligging in the backstage area. <laughs> I don't know. Just for how, how the band prepares, how the band tries to present itself on stage. It's another gig yeah. to us, really. No it's special. Like, things going on. You know, we play yeah. the same if we play in front of 600 people or 60,000, we just go out because we enjoy what we do so much that there's not really, it's not difficult to get really excited about if there's only a thousand people because we get excited from what we play. And so, you know, it's just another show. Of course, you know, there's a bit more sort of excitement in the area, but I mean, in a way, when we hit the stage, the same thing goes on as at any other show. What differentiates Metallica from the other bands over here today? I don't know. Why don't you find out? <laughs> I think we have something different to offer than most of the other bands that are doing the rounds today. No. I think we have something different to offer than most of the other bands that are around today in terms of in image and in sort of the way we play and what we do. You know, where most of the stuff that's around today, like James was saying earlier, is so safe. And um, there seems to be a big market for the kind of stuff we do, which is just play what we want for ourselves. And people can sort of, uh, there seems to be a big audience that can get into that. We're sort of like one step, we're like furthest out in like left field pretty much from the middle of any of the sort of bigger heavy metal bands today. You know, sort of as unsafe as you can get. <laughs> and. Um, we get away with it. <laughs> what differentiates Metallica from other hardcore bands like the Slayers, the Megadeths, etc., etc.? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what difference? Um, yeah, if, if Slayer was playing one end of town, you were playing on the other end of town. Why would I see you? I don't know. Or should I go see Maybe that? you're not into Satan. I mean, I think a lot of these bands um, catch on to a lot of the cliches that are going on in heavy metal today. We try and, and shy away from as many of them as we can while still, still doing the sort, I mean, in heavy metal, everything's already been done before, but we're trying to avoid as many of the cliches as we can. And I think some of the under, other speed metal bands and sort of underground thrash metal bands are just taking in all these cliches and it gets so unexciting or interesting. Plus, I think also from a musical standpoint, we have a bit more to offer 
just from the point of view that we try and put as much into the music as we can in terms of of the song arrangings and song writings and tempo changes and stuff like that. And I think we're also maybe a little bit more serious musicians than most of these other bands. So sort of all of that thrown in together, there was Metallica. <laughs> well. Thank you. Did you get a chance to watch that interview? I watched some of it. I hadn't ever seen it before. But I yeah, was looking, I was, I was Googling uh, stuff for it and hadn't seen yeah. that. So I wasn't aware of it, but it was quite interesting. Yeah, I like watching bands when they're a lot younger, seeing their energy, their yeah, <laughs> what they're all about. My favorite part of that interview is when the person interviewing James Lars calls them the underground hardcore metal band, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, they which they were at the time. It's just funny where they because of where they ended up. <laughs> You know, and like what has come out in the metal scene since then? <laughs> you you can say what you want about the band, like their history, the whole Napster thing, the history of the band, their change, reload, load, the money, the tours. Essentially, what they are at this point is what they've always been, but with cash and better instruments. So they're just a million dollar die bar band, and that's fucking amazing <laughs> yeah. in my eyes. I I agree with you. I and you know part of the reason why Metallica is my favorite band is because I feel like in the grand scheme of things, they've not really changed who they are. They've obviously gotten older. They obviously are different people in a lot of ways and their music has changed here or there and they've experimented and done this and done that and whatever. But the overall attitude and vibe for the band is the same and they still have like a fan first um, uh, attitude about them and how they approach a lot all their projects and just the quality that you get from them and each of their projects is just extremely high and so consistent that it's, I, I don't get anybody who can hate them. And I think the only people who really hate them are the people who in childhood, they heard load and jumped on a haters bandwagon or in childhood Napster happened and they were like, Oh fuck this band. They're greedy without yeah. really, recognizing what like the details of what was going on and what was happening and and guess what Lars was right <laughs> you know at the end of the day they're still although they're famous to some people and you see them on TV and you see them on music videos or whatever they're still trying to feed their kids and if you were a kid yeah. and you're at home and you wanted the new Metallica CD but somebody went to your dad's job as a lawyer and just downloaded all his case files and gave them away so you couldn't get it you'd want right. piracy stopped yeah. You know, if it's coming out yeah. of your pockets, like, they earned it. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too, is that people are like, oh, they're millionaires. I'm like, yeah, because we've given them those millions because we like what they do. Yeah, like, they should be millionaires. Shit's expensive. I, I'm, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, and guess what? They earned it. Anybody who started with nothing and with a talent or skill developed into something i think needs to be applauded and if they make money along the way good for them <laughs> you look at the way the band started dave mustaine playing solos in his girlfriend's vest they're being paid in beer and things like that and now hetfield has a show where he displays his car it's like yeah. lars buys his beautiful art kirk's just surfing a wave on life somewhere on his own energy like he's just <laughs> yeah. they're a great band they're, they do 
amazing stuff. And yeah. like you said, uh, the way they've evolved, they do things now that I've seen bands just starting to do, but they've been doing it for a decade. They do AR yeah. in the arena, but on yeah. DVD of concerts as well. Yeah. So you'll see things that you wouldn't see in the, the venue when you watch it on DVD. But in the venue, they'll have like the like the dead magnetic statue. They'll have AR of it falling, and they'll have like they'll have all these things that other bands are just now getting on. They've already right. established. Them and Ramstein were the front runners, I guess, for stage shows for a while. Yeah. And but you know what? The, it's not a coincidence or an accident that they are still a relevant band. You know, which is I what part of the reason why I love Metallica and I like doing this podcast is because. I can talk about something in 1985 that was, you know, 35 years ago. And I can talk mm-hmm. about something that happened last week, like we did on this podcast. And it's still yeah. a relevant thing because people still care. They're still, I, I, I cannot think of, tell me if you can think of a band um, in rock or hard rock or metal that is 30 plus years into a career and when they release a new album, it's still a meaningful landmark event. And when you go see them live, they can open up with like one, two, three new songs and get like a rabid reaction. There's, there's, there's a two few I can of, think of. There's a, there's a few, but there's not a lot. Who are the two that you have? Uh, Metallica and Judas Priest. Okay, I think I if you wheels Rob Priest. Halford out on his deathbed, his death rattle would be a high note and he'd nail it <laughs> <laughs> you just open his mouth and let one out you'd be like this motherfucker. Like, <laughs> but i i think but it's but even like if you look at other bands let's just talk about metal for uh for the moment i guess if you look at other bands like a judas priest or an iron maiden or a megadeth or anthrax or slayer right you... maiden could pull a song out from any decade and the fans would hit the roof yeah, the the people there's an audience there for that band and for that album, especially if the album's good and getting good press and everything. Like Maiden is a great example, I think, but it's just never as big as Metallica. You know, they're just in this rarefied air, and it, for them to get to that level and still have the amount of people care and care as much as we all do, I think is pretty pretty amazing i don't know if this comes across in the states but like as a scottish guy like the where maiden come from and their accents and stuff they're quite a pompous snobby band to me oh really yeah i'm like i'm like oh you like maiden oh you're a clever man are you you're in depth with your thoughts about space so here's here's what i want you you to do can you do me a favor i'm gonna put you on the spot so, because you're a wrestling fan and you have this attitude towards Iron Maiden, my yes. uh, my cousin Mike, who's been on this podcast before, is the biggest Iron Maiden fan I know. Um, he has his own Maiden podcast. Um, he is the founder of FansOnExperts.com, which hosts Metallicast. Can you please cut a little bit of a wrestling promo against Mike and his love for Iron Maiden? I don't know if I can cut a wrestling promo, but I can tell them that that's like they're essentially <laughs> over here on that's upper upper white middle class. Like 
you're not just into heavy metal. You're into heavy metal because it's futuristic and space. <laughs> <laughs> you're here for the art, and you want to fly 747s and look at our stage show, and I want to smash a beer can on my head and then smash my head on yours. Because like, that's how the two metals interact. Like British metal, the new wave of British heavy metal, to people in other countries is this glorious thing. And to us, we're just like, it's more of those English guys with money again, wearing those stupid jackets. <laughs> Sergeant uh, Peppers, they are not. <laughs> uh, yeah, so how do the Scottish feel about the Beatles? Uh, my mum loves them. Uh, she played yeah. them a lot as a kid. Yeah. Uh, there was a point where I thought I was going to die hearing I am the walrus. Like it was just, she loves them and Dr. Hook, so they were on as a kid a lot. Yeah. <laughs> And my dad was into the Stones, a little bit of Metallica, big yeah. um, Thin Lizzy guy. But my parents are a lot older growing up over here. Like, yeah, it's weird here. Like, we have access to a lot of American culture to yeah. the point where you forget we have our own. Like, sometimes <laughs> right. I'll be sitting, yeah. I'll be eating Tim bits from Tim Hortons, yeah. listening to like some American radio station from like Sirius through the internet, like on my headphones, sitting in, like, sitting in Scotland, just going, it's cold out. And then I realize what I'm doing. And I'm like, this is kind of amazing though. I get Canadian coffee franchise, American radio. Yeah. Sitting here. And meanwhile, we just watch your alcohol. We're like, Oh, some of that. Send that oh, we're big way. for that. <laughs> oh, we're big for that. You're, your friend with the Maiden podcast, the what he should be aware of is there's oh, only not, one. I, he, I want to make it clear, he's not my friend. He's family. He's not my friend. I want to make it clear, he's not my friend. Fuck Just that cut guy. it there. Fuck That's that guy. <laughs> I didn't choose him. He's, yeah. there's, only, there's only one good Iron Maiden cover in existence, in my opinion. There's a British punk band called The Gallows, and they cover the song Wrathchild. Mm-hmm. And there's a drum fill in it that sounds like a fat lady falling down the stairs in a cartoon. It's like a blah, 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 blah. Like, and I love it. Every time the car that comes on, I squeeze the wheel. I'm like, yes! <laughs> I am definitely not familiar with that cover. I will check it out, though. Should. <laughs> Any final words on Metallica, Day on the Green? It's been good recording, man. Support his group. Support participate. Support the podcast. Retweet listen to his stuff he's a good guy and listen to heavy music i that's why i approve this message <laughs> stamp of approval number two do you want to plug your twitter or anything or nah man it's about the music of the band if they want to find me they'll find me i'm sure you'll tag me i'm not really too fussed as I long as you're happy with you. the episode and everyone's happy hearing it uh i am happy with the episode i had fun uh recording with you if other people are not happy with the episode uh, they can go fuck themselves. That's what I say. Yeah, you know, just write down your opinion. Uh, There's only and... about five other Metallica podcasts to choose from, okay? So, <laughs> oh. There's something for everybody out there, all right? Start your, start your own if you don't like it. Tell it to your friends, loser. <laughs> uh, please follow, if you're not already, please follow Metallicast on social media. Twitter, yes. Facebook, Instagram, at MetallicastPod. I mentioned FlickChat before. Again, download for free. Use the code Metallicast. Join the Metallicast group. Uh, we have a lot of good conversations. And uh, it kind of was not a lull for a bit, I'll be honest with you. But it's all of a sudden, it's picking back up again and more people are joining. It's a small community, but it's a fun community. So please join. 
Uh, Metalcast is on Anchor, and in the description you'll see a link to leave a voice message. I used to have the Metalcast hotline that is dead and buried, but if you ever want to leave a voice message uh, for a future episode, please feel free to do so. Use the link. You can record it on phone, computer, whatever you got. Um, Anchor also allows donations. I don't like necessarily asking for donations because I'm, you know, it's a free podcast. I'm keeping it free. But if you find it in your heart to donate, um, any money I get will go towards uh, just improving this podcast. So if you're like Tommy Trink and you don't like the production values of this, then donate Tommy Trink. Give me some <laughs> goddamn money. And guess what? I can buy new mics. I can buy new equipment and improve the fucking production values for you. Oh, Tommy Trick makes me so mad, Dave. <laughs> he makes me so they, mad. They, they never think, though, it could be that they just have very low-quality headphones, no? <laughs> That's right. It's your headphones. Go fuck yourself, Tom. I yeah. Love, I love Tommy <laughs> Trick. Go back on the show soon. <laughs> Speaking of Tommy Trink, who left me that backhanded five-star review, leave me a five-star review <laughs> on, uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a little friendly comment. It makes me feel nice and warm inside. If you're like, oh, that Brandon, he's so funny and knowledgeable and cute and handsome and sexy. And, you know, you can go on and on all day about how great I am and about <laughs> how great the show is. It makes me feel good. Uh, but please, at least rate the podcast five stars. Don't bother. All right. Some of you are going on then you're like, one star. Like, if you're going to take the time, who has time to, like, go out of the way and give a one star review to a, a fucking podcast? Get a life. Go on, Even find the time to go on there and like do something positive with your life and leave me a five star review. <laughs> um, one more mention before we wrap up uh, Met Fan Mike, uh, who some of you might know through the Metallica forums or just from going see them live. He followed, he was a black ticket holder who went to every single uh, World Wired show in the States. Um, he's doing uh, an episode about his experience of following the band. The YouTube series is called By Myself But Not Alone. He just released an episode about uh, the Albany, New York uh, show, which I w- which I attended and had the privilege of meeting Mike. And uh, he gives Metallicast a nice little shout-out in the episode. So I want to be sure to return the favor for him. Check it out on YouTube, By Myself But Not Alone. And, I love that name. Yeah, it's a very cool name. Um. And as always, I want to end with a cover song. So this came on my radar. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe one of you out there can educate me. Um, I'm not exactly sure who this man is or what his background is. When I looked him up, it seems like he just does like a lot of cover songs. But he did a whole... uh, He he basically re-recorded all of Kill 'Em All. Every single track in a, um, a very heavy, extreme, kind of Lamb of God meets death metal style. And here is his cover. I, I, had, to, I had to go with an oldie since we're talking 85 Talica here today. Um, so here, his name is Morden Mueller. Muller. I'm probably mispronouncing that name. Look it up, though. M-U-L-L-E-R. And this is him covering... The Four Horsemen. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle up your ass. Yeah!
Fast non-experts.